0: This is African News Tonight
1: on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VUE Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clotty and here's what's coming
0: up. The reality of the matter is that this is not our mess. We have been brought in to clean it up, but we are not going to be the full guy. That was Busisiwe
1: Mavuso, a board member of ESCOM, who was appointed by the ruling ANC on allegations that the utility's current leadership is to blame for mismanagement and major power outages. And all this and more coming up on African News Tonight. Authorities in Sudan's Darfur region say at least 200 people were killed and dozens of others wounded during renewed intercommunal clashes between Arab nomads and local farmers over the weekend. Witnesses in the West Darfur state capital, Al-Gheneena, say the clashes in Kirinik locally resumed this morning. Michael Atid reports for VOA from
2: Khartoum. Six of the Sudan armed forces are reportedly killed by rapid support forces as the exchange of gunfire continues this morning. That is Dr. Adam Zakaria speaking from his hideout in Al Janena town of West Darfur State after fleeing the hospital in the capital last evening when armed Arab nomads stormed the hospital while bringing in some of their colleagues wounded during the fighting in Kerenik. Dr. Zakaria says the armed nomads killed six people in the hospital facility last night. He says... The gunmen tried to force health workers to treat their colleagues. The hospital is shut down after health workers went running for their lives, according to Dr. Zakaria. The situation in Al-Janaina is tense and the main hospital is closed because health workers are not safe to carry out their duties. Some of us have been threatened, beaten and forced to treat wounded people. Locals in the Krenik locality say the fighting broke out Friday following the discovery of bodies of two nomads on April 21 near Hashaba village, about one kilometers west of Krenik town. Clashes in and around Krenik town continues at this hour, according to local officials. As Sadiq Muhammad, the head of the humanitarian department in West Darfur state, says a preliminary report indicates more than 200 people were killed since the fighting began in Krenik and surrounding villages. He says the death toll is likely to increase. The 201 bodies that have been identified are counted in public places and roads. But many people have been killed inside their houses. The situation is not conducive to carry out additional counts and definitely the number may increase. Authorities in West Darfur state have deployed security forces in Al Janina town and the surrounding villages. The displacement tracking matrix in Sudan, which is produced by the United Nations International Organization for Migration, estimates that between 7,500 to 12,500 households in and around Krenik town have sought refuge in a military compound within the town. Field teams confirm... 201 individuals were killed and 100 have been injured as a result of the violence in Krenik. A statement issued by the Norwegian Refugee Council in Sudan calls for an end to the violence. In a statement, Will Carter, country director for the NRC in Sudan, called on all parties to immediately de-escalate and restrain from further harming civilians. Carter said, save and free passage of fleeing civilians and access for humanitarian assistance must be urgently restored. After experiencing brutal violence, the communities in West Darfur state are once again left neglected and vulnerable with no protection or accountability, said Carter adding the entire Darfur region is quickly sinking into conflict and needs urgent attention from the international community. For months, insecurity has spread across at least three areas of West Darfur state and in the neighboring states of North and South Darfur. The World Food Programme reported earlier this month that over 18 million people are likely to face acute food insecurity by September across Sudan because of the combined effects of insecurity, economic crisis and poor harvest. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum.
1: An alleged driver for the notorious Jungler's Death Squad in Gambia, and the former dictator, Yaya Jame went on trial in Germany today, wearing a black hood to hide his face. Human Rights Watch called it the first trial to prosecute human rights violations committed in the Gambia during the Jame era on the basis of universal jurisdiction. That allows a foreign country to prosecute crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide, regardless of where they were committed. The 46-year-old suspect, identified by media as by Lo is accused of crimes against humanity, murder, and attempted murder. The French news agency AFP reported that Lowe is accused of driving junglers to kill AFP correspondent Dada Haidara in 2004 and Dowda Nyasi, a suspected opponent of the president, in 2006, along with the attempted slaying of lawyer Usman Selah. He survived the attack with serious injuries. Jame ruled the Gambia with an iron fist for 22 years, until losing the 2017 presidential election to Adama Barrow, He refused to acknowledge the results, but was forced out by a popular uprising and fled to Equatorial Guinea. Patrick Crocker, a lawyer for Haideresson, told AFP that he hopes the trial will be a signal to Switzerland, where former Gambian Interior Minister Usman Sonko is under investigation, and the U.S., where an alleged jungler Michael San-Korea has been indicted. Since October 2021, Egyptian authorities have deported at least 68 Eritrean nationals, including children, without assessing the risk they may face in their home countries. Several of those deported have not been seen or heard from since their return to Eritrea. UN human rights experts have expressed grave concern at what appears to be shaping up as a policy of arbitrary and collective expulsion of Eritreans from Egypt. And caution that such deportations violate Egypt's obligations under international law. Reporter Angie Omar discussed the collective expulsions with Wendy Williams, Associate Research Fellow at Africa Center for Strategic Studies. Her research focuses on forced displacement and migration, violent extremist organizations, international human rights, humanitarian law, and the rule of law.
3: As the UN has documented, the Eritrean government has engaged in widespread and systematic attacks against the country's civilian population since 1991. This includes crimes of enslavement, imprisonment, enforced disappearance, torture, persecution, rape, and murder. And Eritreans continue to be subjected to indefinite military and national service, which often entails abusive conditions, and they're used as forced labor. It's also disappointing because Egypt has long been a valuable refugee country or refuge for refugees for many Africans. Uh, Egypt has a large informal economy and an immigrant community, which many Africans seek out, whether they be long-term or merely transiting. The country is currently officially hosting about just over a quarter million refugees, of which there are more than 21,000 Eritreans. Undoubtedly, there are many more undocumented refugees living in the country, so this is definitely very disappointing to see.
1: According to the U.N. human rights, collective expulsion is prohibited under international human rights law. Patterns of human rights violations against Eritreans who have been forcibly returned, including torture, ill treatment, enforced disappearance, trafficking in persons, and arbitrary detention have been well documented by U.N. human rights mechanisms. To what extent
3: are these expulsions violate the principle of non-refoulement? It's a very important refugee right, and it applies not only to officially recognized refugees in a country, but also to those refugees who have entered a country unlawfully. And that is simply because a lot of refugees may be fleeing in a situation where they don't have the luxury or time to apply for a visa, or especially in the case of Eritrea, where they're not allowed to leave. So the only way they can possibly enter another country would be unlawfully. Uh, the governing principle of non-refoulement is to protect people seeking asylum from being forcibly sent back to a country where there are reasonable chances of them being put persecuted. And in this case, there's clear evidence that the chances are high that the repatriated Eritreans and even their extended families would be targeted for reprisal by the Eritrean government. According to the UN, an estimated 70 to 200 Eritreans, including children, are currently
1: in detention in Egypt and at risk of deportation. The UN added that immigration
4: detention of children is always a violation of international human rights law. How much of a grave harm could these children face if they are forcibly returned to Eritrea?
3: Eritrea's mandatory conscription, which, according to the UN, is still in place, officially applies to all citizens between 18 and 40. So these children that you're describing, if they are close to conscription age, they are definitely at risk of being immediately conscripted. But, you know, Eritrea also has been cited by the UN for reprisals against refugees and their family members, as I mentioned. So I would be very concerned for everybody being repatriated and their extended families, even those already in the country.
1: That was Wendy Williams, Associate Research Fellow at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with reporter Angie Omar. French President Emmanuel Macron defeated far-right rival Marine Le Pen to become the first French leader in 20 years to win a second term. Several European and African leaders and politicians have swiftly congratulated him. Many in Europe had worried a Le Pen victory would undermine European unity and its post-war order amid Russia's invasion of Ukraine more, international editions, Cine for spoke with reporter Catherine Field.
4: There is a collective side of Europe, and within half an hour of the result projections coming in, we saw the head of the European Commission, we saw the German Chancellor, we saw the Italian Prime Minister congratulating Emmanuel Macron for making it past the 50% mark because there really was a concern that with so many other populist governments around that perhaps it wouldn't really go the way that they hoped so yes there's huge relief but also there's concern that even though Emmanuel Macron has managed to get 58-59% of the vote, that still leaves a large number of people who voted for a far-right populist candidate in the centre of Europe. And that is really what he talked about when he made a speech at the Eiffel Tower. He said he knows a lot of people voted for him because he wasn't Marine Le Pen, because they didn't want a Marine Le Pen president. And he said that some ways people will say that he was president by default, he said he now hoped that he would be president of all French people.
1: What has been the reaction of the French citizens and French public?
4: There is relief, but the real issues that people voted on in these elections were home issues. They were the issues of spending power, rising prices, food prices are going up, fuel prices, petrol prices are all going up. And that's what's really worrying them, is that yes, okay, there is going to be Emmanuel Macron, a president who they know... been in power already for five years that these new challenges that they have france hasn't seen these for generations when you see war in europe you see uncertainty within the european union these are all new challenges that this French president is going to have to deal with in a way that he hasn't really been tested before. And when he made his speech, he was very somber. He wasn't gloating, And you got the feeling as he was talking that he now realizes that the next five years are going to be immensely difficult.
2: There are huge expectations for President Emmanuel Macron, especially on the African continent. Do you see any change? What are the hopes and expectations of Africans now that he has won a second term?
4: Well, they can very much expect more of the same. What we've seen with Emmanuel Macron in the past is showing a new side of France trying to turn the page on the Franco-African policies that his predecessors had. And he's been talking a lot about Africa being the master of its own destiny. So I think we're going to see that. One of the things we've seen in the last couple of weeks has been his focus on food shortages in Africa and he's been not just talking to some of his closer allies in Africa particularly the Senegal's leader about you know, food prices but we've also seen him bringing it up at the EU right, saying, Look, the crisis in Ukraine isn't just causing food shortages and food price rises in Europe it's also causing severe economic problems for people in Africa we've seen him bringing that up on the European stage so I think you're going to see more of that certainly he's going to be concerned about what he's been seeing in Mali. problem there hasn't gone away. And he's going to have to really think again as to how he deals with the ongoing problems, particularly in the Sahel.
1: That was International Edition's Chinedu Duofo speaking with reporter Catherine Field. Nigerian President Mohamed Buhari says the government will intensify a crackdown on illegal oil refineries after a fire in the country's southeast killed more than 100 people. A source in the area said the fire in the Abayazi forest in the Ohaji, Egbema, local government area of Imo State, was ignited by a machine used to pump spilled crude into containers. Buari called the blaze a catastrophe and national disaster. Reuters reported that it destroyed several cars. Victims' bags and clothing littered the ground. Joseph Olo Obari, a former spokesman of Shell Petroleum Development Company, told reporter Mike Mbonyi that the government should take drastic action to stop such illegal refining of crude oil.
0: My name is Joseph Olo former spokesperson, Shell Petroleum Development Company. The incident in Ebema is a sad one. It is most unfortunate. It is preventable, but it is really disheartening that it has occurred. But it is not the only incident that has happened. There have been several or such incidents claiming tens of lives in some cases. In some instances, it's involved in the entire ship burning down. But because they happened in remote areas, they were actually not reported. And some of other incidents that have happened in the creeks of the Niger Delta, claiming lives of young people it is disheartening that it may not be the last unless something drastic is done about this.
2: What should be done to check illegal refineries in oil producing areas?
0: The theft of crude oil in Nigeria, especially in the Niger Delta, has become almost endemic. In most instances, It's very obvious that involves security personnel who are meant to prevent it from happening. The only way it can be coped is for government to take very serious actions against perpetrators, especially security personnel who are known to be involved in this. And until the government is willing to do this, it's simply just crying over spill milk because it will continue as long as impunity in this whole crime continues. Some talk about artisanal refining. There is nothing like artisanal refining. It is pure stolen crude oil being cooked in the very primitive manner. And it is
2: destructive. What are the risks to life's effects on environment in areas with illegal refineries? first
0: impact of illegal oil refining is the environment. The environment suffers their consequences from whatever remnant of their primitive processes that is thrown into uh, the aquatic life and and, and, and the ecosystem. This in itself holds long-term health risk for the people in the region because whatever pollution trickles down into the food chain. There is the pollution, air pollution resulting from very deadly smoke that, is, that billows into the atmosphere and draws down, down as particulates that people inhale and they have been proven to be carcinogenic. Risk to life, to respiratory uh, system of people in the region, And then, of course, the greatest immediate danger or risk is the destruction of our economy. The government has cried out that nearly 80% of its oil production is being stolen. Some oil producing companies have had to shut down their operations just because they are unable to sustain production when it is being stolen unabated, unrestricted, and completely they are rendered helpless that was joseph ola obari
1: former spokesman of shell petroleum development company speaking by phone with reporter mike mboye south africa's ruling african national congress is in april after a prominent party member blamed it for the country's prolonged electricity crisis for almost 15 years power outages have cost africa's most industrialized economy billions of dollars they resulted in extreme discomfort for citizens Big business says the blackouts have caused thousands of jobs and massive loss of foreign investment. They are also blamed for many deaths in traffic accidents and in hospitals where life saving medical
5: equipment stopped working during power failures. Darren Taylor reports. Energy experts say South Africa is now paying the price for the years of misrule under President Jacob Zuma between 2009 and 2018. A commission of inquiry has found that's when the ANC stalwart appointed cronies to loot the country's national electricity company, ESCOM. Its present board says it's now effectively bankrupt. SUMA's inexperienced and allegedly corrupt managers failed to maintain electricity infrastructure. They, along with a former president, allegedly stole and wasted hundreds of billions of rands meant for upgrading two of south africa's biggest power stations medupi and Kusile. so escom no longer has the capacity to provide power to the entire country it's often forced to ration electricity in a process known as load shedding at a parliamentary meeting on friday The ANC-dominated Public Accounts Committee blamed current ESCOM CEO Andre De and his board for a recent wave of blackouts. This prompted ANC-appointed board member Busisiwe Mavuso to react defiantly. What we will not
0: accept is to have this board and Andre as the fall guy for the mess that this organization is currently experiencing, because the reality of the matter is that this is not our mess. We have been brought in to clean it up, but we are not going to be the full guy for the 300 and whatever billion of Midwupi and kusile. We cannot be the Folkeye guy for this ANC-led
5: government. Committee Chairman Mkuleko Chlengua accused Mavuso of theatrics for the TV cameras. She snapped back. It wasn't theatrics, it was facts. ANC officials then accused Mavuso of insulting them, so she took them on too. It's not an
0: insult, it's facts. No, no.
5: what is
0: the fact that this is the mess of the ANC-led government
5: Khlengwa then threatened to hold Mavuso in contempt of parliament
0: so either you behave yourself or you excuse yourself from this meeting I'll excuse myself I think you best do that I think I should also, thank you you
1: and we'll be making fundamental recommendations about yourself and your very unprofessional conduct it's in fact politics of gutter, as far
2: as i'm concerned
5: but civil society groups say mavuso was being threatened for being professional and for telling the truth about the rot in her own party former opposition leader Musi maimane points out even anc leader and current president cyril Ramaphosa says his party is accused number one in the escom fiasco The political mismanagement and the governance failures that the ANC has brought
1: upon ESCOM need to be exposed. It's a fact of truth. It cannot be something that now suddenly we must now chastise an individual for stating what is plainly known to all South Africans. I want to applaud this particular board member for the courageous actions that she's done. I want to
5: inspire all the other board members. While South Africans, frustrated that the lights are often off, are also applauding Mavuso for her honesty, opposition parties are certain she's not going to be an ESCOM board member for very much longer, with her place in the ANC also in jeopardy. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg.
1: And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clotter in Washington. For all latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewingnews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing The Voice of America.
4: or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays.